0: When a child comes to the border, alone, unaccompanied, and they're requesting protection from U.S. authorities, they face a lot of challenges. Imagine this, that you travel thousands of miles and you arrive at the border and you're treated like a criminal.
1: That is the reality for many of those seeking asylum in the U.S. Many of them are children traveling on their own, unaccompanied minors.
2: They are coming because they are fleeing violence. Many of them fleeing violence because they are looking for their family members and relatives.
1: This spring, we've seen more than 100,000 people apprehended a month by U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. And close to 20,000 of those were unaccompanied minors seeking asylum. That's according to U.S. Customs and Border Patrol
0: numbers. The number of unaccompanied immigrant children in federal custody has been growing in recent months, and, according to one report, have now grown fivefold over the last year, reaching their highest levels ever.
1: But the United States just isn't set up for this.
0: Our stations are not built for that group uh, that's crossing today. They're, they were built uh, 30, 40 years ago for single-adult males, uh, and we need a different approach.
2: The sixth Migrant child is known to have died
0: after crossing into the U.S. The Health and Human Services Department said that the little 10-year-old girl died eight months ago.
1: I feel like this is intentional. It's intentional. It's a policy choice being made on purpose by this administration, and it's cruel and inhumane. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Every week, we bring you a story from Al Jazeera's journalism. And in this episode, we're taking you to the U.S.-Mexico border to talk about what happens to these children traveling alone to seek asylum in the United States. That journey is dangerous. But this episode is about the dangers they're facing once they get to the border, when they're in the care of adults who are supposed to be helping them. And one of our journalists is going to tell us the story of a teenager who made it to the U.S.,
3: my name is Damia Bonmati, and I report about immigration for Alsacidas media outlet, HA+.
1: Damia covers immigration in the U.S. and knows how the landscape has shifted during the last few years. He's
3: also spent a lot of time at the U.S.-Mexico border. I was there in December. That was when that big caravan that left Honduras in October 2018 arrived in Tijuana. And that's where our story starts, in Mexico, in Tijuana, in December 2018. The city was overwhelmed by the number of migrants and the city didn't have the capacity to give them a correct welcoming, like shelter them, feed them, help them in some way.
1: Walk us through what it's like to be in a border city with a port of entry from Mexico to the U.S. What's that atmosphere like?
3: Walking from the US to Mexico, it's like entering in a different world.
2: Tacos, tortas, burritos, quesadillas. Algo, señor? Tacos, tortas, burritos, quesadillas.
3: Tijuana is, in fact, one of the busiest border cities, not only in the US Mexico border, but in the whole hemisphere. Tijuana has become a bottleneck. Uh, because many and many asylum seekers turned away at the port of entry, and migrants can wait for weeks, for months, stuck in Tijuana, in a city without the capacity to shelter them, to feed them, in a city very widespread where um, traveling from one place to the other can take an hour or more, in a city with very humble areas, with a strong presence of the cartels.
1: Talk to us about what it is that motivates many of the migrants that you talk to into coming in the first place? Why are they coming?
3: Most of the migrants from Central America, especially in combined minors, they mention the gang violence, but also the poverty and the unemployment. That's a fact. But I think that it's important to consider two things here. These children are growing up in a context where the U.S. has been always on their minds. Mm. La USA, they say, the USA. They have a father, a mother, a neighbor living in the U.S. They know that the U.S. economy relies on undocumented workers for doing and producing things that Americans don't want to work on, right? Mm -hmm. And they are minors. And they see this as a countdown. They think that if they cross, if they try to cross into the U.S. before turning 18, the chances to get asylum bigger.
1: You actually met a group of minors who were trying to get to the U.S. to claim asylum. Talk to us about them,
3: uh, who they were, what your impressions were of meeting them. I met most of the minors in Tijuana in a shelter. This is one of the few shelters across the U.S.-Mexico border working with unaccompanied minors. This is a volunteer-run Mexican shelter with kids, wait until they get their turn to present their cases in the port of entry in San Diego. Most of them were teenagers. I would say they were between 14 and 17 years old. Inside, I saw a lot of kids in a very small living room with a kitchen. I would say 30, 35 uh, teenagers. And uh, there are three bedrooms in different parts of the building. Most of the kids, they sleep in mats on the floor because there was no space. And there was a couple of sofas with the TV on. And that day talking about the migrants and the caravan, and that was in part their stories.
0: Cientos, cientos of trabajadores Cientos de extorsion, de secuestro, de violencia.
3: So they're watching news reports about their lives. Correct. They knew what's the journey. They knew what's to be walking during twelve hours and then try to get a shelter in a Mexican city. Um that they just learned about it that day. And
1: from the kids that you met, there's one that has a very particular story. Tell us
3: about Jose. Jose was one of the first teenagers that I met at the shelter. Jose, at that point, was 17 years old, and he's from Honduras. And I want to make clear that his real name is not Jose, but we are using this name to protect his identity. He was very integrated in the group. He had been there for a couple of weeks, but at the same time he was very observant. He talked as an adult compared to other kids at the shelter. He left Honduras because he was scared for his life.
2: I was robbed three times. They were the same guys they were members of a gang. I recognized them, but I didn't want to report them. But they thought I was going to go to the police.
3: But there was a turning point, Uh, a day he was driving his um, motorcycle and he was attacked by uh, allegedly the, the gang members.
2: After many threats, they finally tried to kill me. They failed, but my motorcycle was hit. It took four bullets.
3: Jose was not injured. He managed to escape, but in that moment he decided to join the migrant caravan that was forming in Honduras.
1: That phrase, migrant caravan, has been in headlines a lot in the last few months, past several months. But is it a new thing in itself, or is it just new that the President of the United States has been tweeting about
3: it? It has been in the news and in the tweets, and that's part of the story. There's been caravans for years now at least one caravan per year was formed as a way to uh, do the journey into the border in a safer and cheaper way.
2: The advantages of the caravan is that the Red Cross is there, the federal police, also the Navy, and they're all protecting you from the cartels. On the other hand, if you come with a coyote, a smuggler, You spend a lot of money because a smuggler from Honduras to here, it costs I don't know how many thousands of dollars. And on top of that, the smuggler is not going to provide you with medical assistance or will not be giving you food when you need it.
1: So once miners reach the border with the caravan, what happens? Do they go straight to a port of entry and
3: then are granted entrance into the country, entrance at least for an interview. They can go to a port of entry in Tijuana. They can try to reach the American port of entry access, but there are Mexican officials on the street who might question them about their intentions and turn them away, blocking their chances to seek asylum in, in U.S. soil. Unaccompanied children
1: are frequently taken into custody by Mexican immigration and thereafter placed in the custody of Mexican Child Protective Services and from there very frequently deported back to their home countries without ever getting a chance to even approach a U.S. official and plead their case.
3: Nicole Ramos is a lawyer I met when I was reporting at the border. She's the co-director of Al Otro Lado, a non law firm based in Tijuana, and she actually tried to help Jose to present his case to American authorities.
1: And she talked to you about some of the things she's seen on that border, which, as you've just described, can be very dangerous. There's an instance or so, or more than one, in which she talked about seeing how kids are handled?
3: Yes, that's a big concern for immigration lawyers that go to the border.
1: I've seen U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers push unaccompanied children off of U.S. soil and then contact Mexican immigration officers to have them removed from the premises. Unaccompanied minors are especially vulnerable because they are just children and they are traveling without their parents. So, Damien, Tijuana can be a really dangerous place. Last year, something terrible happened to the group of kids you were in touch with, who were waiting on the Mexican side of the border. Tell us what happened.
3: That happened the third week of December.
1: Three people are now behind bars for the murder of two Honduran teenagers in Tijuana.
3: Three. Kids from Honduras left the shelter. They wanted to illegally cross the border, according to what the boys at the shelter said. But they were kidnapped, two of them killed, and one more managed to escape and report what happened to the Mexican authorities. That was a big impact to all these kids waiting at the shelter. Jose was staying at that shelter in Tijuana when the kids were murdered. Uh, That was six months ago. And just recently I called him because I, I wanted to catch up with him and see how he was doing. He told me what he remembered about that time in Tijuana.
2: The killing of the kids, that scared me. Because the guys who did it started hovering around the shelter. It scared me. They closed the doors at the shelter. It was not the place that it was before. Now, it was a locked room. We didn't have freedom there, just to sleep and eat. They did not allow us to be outside the rooms because those people were outside, and it was a drug cartel.
1: There's danger at home that's driven these kids to leave. There's danger in Tijuana, and Mexico has deported tens of thousands of people this spring before they could even claim asylum. So,
3: when these miners get turned away from the port of entry, what do they do? They might take a risky decision, which is crossing illegally the border, climbing the fence. That doesn't mean that they are going to lose their chances to get asylum in the U.S., but by doing this, they are exposed to human traffickers who might be operating around the fence.
1: So what happens to a minor who decides, I'm going to jump the fence.
3: I can't wait any longer. What's next for them? They jump the fence and they are detained most of the times by U.S. Border Patrol. When they are taken away by agents, they are placed in cells that they call ice boxes, Las hileras, because it is very cold inside and they keep the lights on 24-7. By law, minors can only be in Border Patrol custody for up to 72 hours. After that, they are supposed to go to these other long-term shelters. But what we have seen during our reporting is that they are often stuck in these iceboxes for longer than that. And in fact, the the Washington Post recently reported they obtained unreleased data from the government, and an official told them that about half of the children in custody, around a thousand kids, have been with the Border Patrol for longer than 72 hours. They can be there up to seven, eight days before they are transferred to these other shelters, and those shelters are run by U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. They operate more than 160 shelters for kids. All the kids who cross the border alone end up in these facilities while they wait to be released to a parent or legal guardian. The shelters are privately run under contracts with the government, and that's where things get really risky for the kids. There have been thousands of allegations of sexual abuse or sexual harassment of immigrant children by staff. Congressman Ted Deutsch, a Democrat from Florida, talked about it during a hearing in February of this year. It was on the Trump administration's policy of family separation at the border.
0: These documents demonstrate over the past three years, there have been 154 staff on unaccompanied minor, let me repeat that, staff on unaccompanied minor allegations of sexual assault. This works out on average to one sexual assault by HHS staff on an unaccompanied minor per week.
1: Wow. So there have been abuse allegations and there have been deaths. Since September 2018, six minors have died in U.S. custody, and two of them were unaccompanied children.
3: Do we know why these kids are dying? What's happening here? We don't really know. We know the specific conditions of every case, fevers, pneumonia. But what advocacy groups say is that having minors in detention can have these consequences.
0: I'm Brian Griffey, I'm a researcher and advisor with Amnesty International covering the USA.
3: He knows a lot about the process and he's concerned by the fact that there is not enough oversight on the contractors that work for the US government to have these kids sheltered.
0: The troubling trend is that now, as the numbers are rising of the number of uh, unaccompanied kids seeking asylum at the southwest US-Mexico border, The uh, Office of Refugee Resettlement uh, is now starting to warehouse them in a giant emergency influx shelter, and that's called Homestead.
1: Homestead is about to expand to accommodate thousands of kids who are crossing the border alone.
0: Reports of depression, confusion, and anxiety are rampant in the nation's largest facility for unaccompanied migrant children.
3: We know that this place needs to be shut down.
0: I visited uh, with my team the Homestead Emergency Influx Shelter outside of Miami in April of 2019. The kids whom we spoke with had been held at Homestead for anywhere from one day to over 10 months. At Homestead, um, all of them wore badges with barcodes. Imagine that, putting barcodes on children. It doesn't sit well on the stomach. So what does a day of the child look like? They're being forced to follow an incredibly militaristic set of regimented schedules and rules in these facilities. From when they get up at 7 a.m. until they go to sleep, they're under constant watch and forced to walk around in lines getting their barcodes scanned for any building they enter or exit. You look on the wall and there were a list of commands. These were some of the first things that kids were learning in English. Stand up, sit down, listen to your teacher, the Pledge of Allegiance of the United States of America. That Pledge of Allegiance is the first thing they're teaching kids in this detention facility for immigrant children, is that they're pledging their allegiance to a country of which they are not nationals. That pledge ends with the phrase, with liberty and justice for all. The deepest irony is that these children are giving neither, and they're getting further away from both liberty and justice every day they're held in this facility.
1: We asked U.S. Customs and Border Patrol and the Department of Health and Human Services for comment on this story, about the observations and claims we heard from Nicole Ramos and Brian Griffey, what they saw at the border in Tijuana and at the Homestead Shelter in the U.S. CBP did not specifically address Nicole's claim about children being pushed back by U.S. officials. HHS shared a statement saying they wanted to create a safe, healthy environment in their shelters. They gave us some facts about how long kids stay in HHS custody on average. This year, it's 66 days. And they said the overwhelming majority of kids are released to sponsors. They told us the barcodes kids wear at Homestead are to help them keep kids safe by monitoring their locations and allergies. And they said none of the kids are required to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. You mentioned you talked to Jose. Tell us about that. How is he
3: doing? I spoke with Jose over the phone. He seemed happy. He's with some relatives in a state in the south of the United States. Hola, ¿me oyes? Mm? ¿Qué tal? Soy Damia de uh, Al Jazeera, de J+ el periodista. His voice was totally different than when I spoke with him in Tijuana. (laughs) He seemed happy, he seemed energized, and he seemed, again, a kid. And how you managed to jump? uh, How someone does that? (laughs) Well, it's easy. But someone helped you? You went with other people?
2: No, I crossed alone.
3: Was it a hard decision to make?
2: Well, not really, because with fear, you can do anything.
3: He ended up in one of these HHS shelters, He spent around uh, 35 days there, and then he was one of the lucky ones. His cousin was able to become his legal guardian, and he was released. And now he's waiting to take his asylum claim before a judge. Did you fly? Took a flight to go meet your cousin. First time? First time. And how was that?
2: Well, it was nice. It felt nice to be the first time.
3: What do you know about your family in Honduras? What What do they say?
2: Well, they're glad I'm here. I feel sad for them because I know they're in danger there. Would you
3: like for them to come here? Yes,
2: I would love very much to have them with me.
3: So your cousin works. Is he documented or not?
2: Yes, he is.
3: And what does he tell you about your future here? He
2: says it's harder here for those who don't know how to think. That's why he tells me, you don't have to work because right now you are a minor, he tells me. I'm taking care of you. Here I have everything you need. I have a house. There is food here, so you can eat what you want, he says. I have a car that I can take you wherever you want. I'm not going to tell you that I have money, but I can find it because I work, he says. But what I want for you is to study so that when you are an adult and work, you have a good salary a good job, and don't have to go to work under the sun. I want you to become a professional, he says. I'm going to help you, but I do want you to be a very good student.
3: And America, is it like you imagined?
2: Yes, but much nicer. Why is that? Because I haven't had to work, back in Honduras, I work a lot.
3: So you're a teenager or a child again?
2: Of course. The childhood that I lost when I was a child, I'm getting it back, and I really enjoy it.
3: And that's
1: The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Damia Bonmati and Priyanka Tilvey. Morgan Waters, Dina Kispe, Amy Walters, and Alexandra Locke. Seth Samuel was the sound designer. Our social media producer is Natalia Aldana. Raylan Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. And I'm Malika Bilal. Special thanks to Damia Bonmati, Tupac Saavedra, Enrique Waikil, and Jair Cabrera.